Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 25. I am very thankful to have been able to share 25 episodes with you, and I have several coming up. Now, I'm recording this introduction on Wednesday, November 4th, and um, ballots are still being counted as I'm recording this. Um, I don't know what the political situation will be as you're listening to this, and I don't know how that makes you feel. However, I hope that this can be an escape for you as you learn more about what it's like to be a musician in a theater pit. Just a couple of things before I get on with my conversation this week. First of all, just to let you know, I'm brainstorming about the future of this show. For sure, it's going to go through 2020 and probably into 2021 for for at least a few weeks. But then I need to make some decisions. Do I continue nonstop once a week? Um, Do I change the frequency of the show? Or um, do I call this and the other episodes part of season one? Take a break and then come back for a season two. Um... Is there some way that I can make use of a Patreon account and you know, make things worthwhile for those who donate? Now, there are some things that factor into this decision. Okay, if you've ever been interested in starting a podcast, there are some things that you should know. Basically, how successful your show is going to be is contingent on one of two things. One, did you have a large devoted audience? before you began? And for me, that would be no. The second thing is, can you win the Apple lottery? That is to say, can you persuade Apple podcasts to good, share your show to the new shows in the, in your genre category, that would be like sharing to the new shows of performing arts for this podcast, or better, get them to share your show to the new and noteworthy category. And both of those are no for me. So what does that mean? Well, it means that I wasn't able to grow the podcast to the point to where I could get a huge influx of guest recommendations. I'm also not getting enough ratings and reviews to capture new attention. Now, now please let me say, if you've shared the show, offered a rating and review, I can't tell you how much that means. If you haven't, it's not just because I want an ego stroke. Sharing, rating, and reviewing is really the only chance I have of growing the show enough to do some of the things that I'd love to do with it. So if you're listening to this show for the first time, I don't always put this up front. In fact, if you listen to the last couple of episodes, I hard, I've hardly mentioned it at all. But please, if you enjoy this show, I need you to introduce it to your friends, and I need you to please share a review and increase the odds of others finding it. I would love to see this grow, finish strong in 2020, um, get a bigger audience going into 2021. And also, I just wanted to say, if you're checking this out for the first time, uh, you can listen to any of the past episodes in any order. It's not a series. Each guest stands on their own. Okay, on to today's featured guest. I'm talking to Virginia Massius. She is a versatile bassist who plays for several symphony orchestras. She's also a big jazz enthusiast, and she plays with some bands, other styles of music. But she says that the pit is her happy place. 
In fact, I've played two gigs with Virginia. The first was a production of Sister Act, and the second was a three-hour gig as part of a jazz trio, so I've experienced how versatile she is. Here is my conversation with Virginia Massius. Virginia, thank you for uh, being on my show today, and uh, I, I just tend to always ask this to my guests, but how have you been handling yourself since March when this COVID shutdown began? Oh, well, I mean, it started with rescheduling everything and then rescheduling, uh, rescheduling again and again. Right. Uh, as it stands, symphony season is supposed to start back up first of the year. Um, we'll see if that really happens, but I've stayed pretty busy. Um, the church band I play with still records um, ahead of the Sunday service, usually Thursday nights. So I'm going downtown to record tonight. Um, some of my students are back in person, again, at more music. So I'm going down there one day a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody else is, you know, mainly online. Um I've also been delivering for a couple of platforms like Postmates and DoorDash, uh, things like that. But also, I've been preparing material with a new band that came from the Praise and Worship Band at West Market Street. Um, So we played a few little shows, plus a couple of my other bands, Gate City Divas never got to do a CD release party, but we were able to record for the MUSEP, um, the Sunday Evening in the Park series. Um, And I played out a couple of times with the Ladies Auxiliary, but that's really been it. Um, I kept plenty busy with household projects as well. So Right. <laughs> yeah, I think 2020 is the first time that full-time working musicians have found, oh, there's, there's things to do at home. <laughs> and and oh, I might yeah. have time to do it if I feel so inclined. <laughs> exactly. That's definitely been the case here. You're the uh, first person I've talked to in a little while. I should say you're the first person I've talked to who's in a symphony orchestra locally um, since decisions have started being made as far as the fall is concerned. Now, we're recording in uh, late September. This episode's, I'm not sure, probably going to come out maybe early November, somewhere around then. So hopefully a lot of what we're talking about is past tense by this point. But what is, uh, like for the Greensboro, for example, what are they planning to do? Are they doing live performances with limited audiences or streaming um, looks like live performance with limited audiences for the time being, at least. Um, our first performance is scheduled for New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, then the rest of the season begins at, you know, right around first of the year. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I was just looking quickly at your bio before we, uh, started. Uh, sounds like, um, you're also in the the Salisbury Symphony Orchestra. Do you know? Yes. Do they have a similar plan or? Um, we really haven't heard a whole lot what about what's being finalized down there. Right. Uh, 
We are also hoping to start back up. We were hoping to do Nutcracker in December, but we're not so sure that's going to happen either. Right. Okay. Well, um, speaking of looking at your bio, I just wanted to peek because, uh, you know, I haven't worked with you a whole lot, so I wasn't too sure, uh, you know, outside my experience with you, what all you did. But um, I noticed on the Facebook, the little introduction here, and I thought it was really appropriate, so, so I wrote it down. Your introduction on Facebook says, I can base in any situation, but the pit is my happy place. Yeah, so, pretty much. <laughs> so that's great. Um, and we're going to talk about all of that. But before we get to the pit, let's just talk about how you got into music. So uh, did you start? Well, with... I started piano lessons right before I turned six. Okay. So I'm kind of learning to read words and music at the same time that way. Um, I really didn't get in the bass until I was... Um, actually, fourth grade was when I started electric bass, and fifth grade was when I started upright bass. Hmm. Okay. And uh, but now, at what point did you say this? This is not just fun, but this is something I could do for a living. Um, pretty much about the time I ended junior high school and was beginning high school. Um, I, I knew if I wanted to get serious about it, I had to make a decision pretty quickly. So that's at the point I quote unquote got serious about it. Mm-hmm. Really started preparing toward actually majoring in that in college. Okay. And, um, you know, a lot of people who play band and orchestral instruments, I'm always curious cause they, uh, you know, it's not like piano. It's like, if you study piano, you, there's not an ensemble you go to. You pretty much have a private teacher right away, you know, as soon as you get any formal study at all. But with band and orchestra instruments, you can get quite a bit of traction if you're a self-starter with practicing. You can do it in the school system itself. But Well, that's how I started. I mean, was in the school system in Illinois. And then when we moved down to North Carolina... Um, Goldsboro City Schools did not have a strings program, mm. but um, we had a band director at the time that really loved the upright bass. <laughs> he said, well, you know, I know you can't join us for marching season, um, but we later remedied that through a wireless system for the electric bass. But he said, why don't you join us for concert season? Let's just see how it goes. And concurrently... I had gotten involved with a program for high school students that East Carolina University had. Um, They had a community orchestra um, through their college orchestra. So I played there from ninth grade, you know, up until my first year of college there. And then after that, I transferred to North Carolina School of the Arts. Okay. Now, prior to that, did you ever have a private teacher or was it all through the group system? Um, no. Once I moved to North Carolina, we were, you know, because of lack of string program, we were concerned. So um, we talked to the uh, strings um, coordinator at East Carolina University, who was Paul Topper at the time. And he got us in touch with Jack Boudreaux, Now, at the time, he was not taking any new students, so he said, I'll give you our assistant principal basis number, Bob Anderson. So, 
you know, it was, I guess, beginning of 10th grade. And that's when I got started with private lessons with him, studied with him for three years before I went to East Carolina University. Um, studied with Jim Lambert until he got the job with Cincinnati Symphony. Then that's when I made the transfer to North Carolina School of the Arts and studied with Lynn Peters for a few years. And after that, I found Larry Hurst at um, Indiana University, had a few lessons with him. And then, you know, through other things throughout high school and college, Eastern Music Festival um, is where I caught up with a great bass teacher by the name of Diana Gannett. So I just, you know, plus uh, master classes with people like Gary Carr, Edgar Meyer, so on. Um, that's pretty much, I had quite a few bass teachers throughout that, that time period. Well, uh, your variety of teachers probably reflects on you as a performer because you have kind of a variety of ways you express yourself through the bass. Um, I was going to kind of ask this later, but, you know, the one thing I don't really know about is the ladies' auxiliary. What is that? Uh, we're an all-female blues band. We do blues, R&B, classic rock, um, and we've been a unit. It got started in 1992, 93, oh. somewhere there. I didn't even join them till 95. And then I played with them for about 10 years and then took off to pursue other things, other projects. And then came back, I guess, around 2013, 2014. And I pretty much a um, couple years after that, was when um, our mastermind, Sheila Kleinfelter, came up with a concept with Gate City Divas, mm. just compiled a bunch of uh, popular female singers across the triad to do this project. We did our first album. We recorded 2015, I believe. We released it 2016 called Going to Town. And our second album we recorded two years ago called Diva Revolution. And that's the one. It's been released, even though we never had the official release party, but it's out now, too. Oh, great. Uh, you know, you talked about, like, starting that in the 90s. I think I've just now kind of accepted. I, I used to think when people mentioned the 90s, I was thinking, oh, that was, what, 15 <laughs> years ago or something like that. But... No, it's like you talk about the nineties. You're talking about twenty five, you know, years to get to the middle. Yeah, of it. <laughs> it doesn't really strike you as being that long ago, but oh my goodness, it has. So yeah, I'm I'm interviewing another guest this week, and someone I went to high school with, and we haven't talked since high school, and we we did the math on how long that was, and it's like that can't be right. <laughs> it's quite amazing. So. Uh, how did you get into uh, playing for Pitts? When when was your first show, and how old were you? Um, my first um, show with like real show with other musicians happened while I was in high school. Mm -hmm. um, the community theater was co putting on Little Abner, and that was my first taste of it. Um, I did at East Carolina. I did more opera than I did musicals, but. Um, 
then once I got to North Carolina School of the Arts, I had more opportunity for that sort of thing through them. Um, I got involved with a little theater of Winston-Salem. That's where I did a lot of my, my um, shows. The first show I did when I came to this area was at UNCG. Uh, they were doing Sweeney, uh, Sweeney Todd that year. As you say, the pit is your happy place. Um, what is it about pit music that's different than the other things you do? First of all, you really kind of got an old plethora of styles, particularly if you're a bass player. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not always going to be just Rogers and Hammerstein mm -hmm. or just uh, modern stuff like um, Bat Boy or um, American Idiot. Mm -hmm. um, there's stuff in between uses classical chops but more in a modern sense um you could have to play straight up jazz um prime example i can think of is gershwin uh crazy for you mm -hmm. and have you been pretty active in shows uh, since college pretty much yes i have um like i say after graduation i did quite a few at Winston-Salem Little Theater, Community Theater, Greensboro, and then Elon University started calling me, and other area bass players started asking me to sub. Um, you know, it just kind of goes on from there. Yeah, let's talk about that. So, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of musicians. I don't think I've really talked in any kind of detail about uh, subbing. You know, there are some theaters um, that, uh, occasionally the director or music director will have a no sub policy. So uh, mm -hmm. you don't really get the chance to do that. But, you know, a lot of times theaters are fine with that. And so um, let's talk about substituting for a show. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've had probably a variety of approaches in that maybe you got to go to rehearsal, maybe you even got the music in advance, but you've, I, yeah. I would imagine you've probably subbed enough. It's been coming in to look at a book while you're doing a live performance. So talk about just some of the, your experiences subbing. What is it, what is it like to come into that environment when you haven't like been studying the music in advance? Uh, well, fortunately, if it's done in advance, um, I get a rehearsal, you know, so I get, get a chance to fall and then click with everybody. But Every once in a while, I don't get to, okay, one, make sure you're familiar with the show. Right. Uh, make sure it's something that you would be comfortable doing. Mm -hmm. um, also, just, you know, if you can find a recording, listen to a recording. Right. Uh, usually, I can, even if it's last minute, I can still get the book ahead of time. Right. Great. So, and anything you can do in advance, just do it. Right. Uh, have you done shows with, um, like the multiple bass setup, like the upright and the, and the electric yeah, and a few of those. Yeah. Um, I, I find the one thing that I find interesting is like each bass sometimes has its own amp. <laughs> and of course, right. as I've mentioned often on here before, it's not a whole lot of space, <laughs> not always. You right. Know? So, right. so it's kind of, uh, finding that setup. So, um, have you found that to be difficult at all in shows before just managing the your setup? 
and so forth? Yeah, well, I mean, just being able to logistically uh, switch from one to the other without knocking something over is mainly ma- main thing I've um, had to deal with. Right. Um, I want to switch gears for a little bit and just talk about jazz. So, And I was thinking uh, the times that I've played with you, I know that uh, we... we we did one show where, I mean, you were sub, but you were there a lot. So I think you, you, you must, you were almost like splitting the duty that was for sister act. And, um, then, uh, I got called for a local restaurant to do jazz. Actually, it's kind of interesting. I, I think I was going to be doing quite a bit of that this year. <laughs> uh, yeah, cause did, we, we I did, did uh, I did two in January mm-hmm. this year. And I think you were on the second one. It's like, as I used Steve yeah. Ware the first time and, um, yes, that's fine. I've done that gig three times and I've, I've used a ba- different basis each time just because no one's been available more than once, but, <laughs> right. um, but that was, that was really fun. And, uh, you know, I learned in advance that you love jazz and you play it really well. So, um, I'm going to backtrack. When did you first get into jazz? Um, I was in middle school of seventh grade. Um, and we had a jazz band director and we would do a lot of the Sammy Nestico arrangements of standard stuff like Ellington or Gershwin, stuff like that. Plus, um, more, um, more music that sounds like it's been fused with something else, you know, like rock or it would be show tunes like the Wiz. Right. Um. So it just helped me with that structure, just learning how those bass lines go. And eventually it trains your ear to listen for certain things, to be able to not just look, but listen ahead. Um, Another thing playing jazz has taught me is about the different layers in music, you know, who contributes what and how all that comes together. Right. Uh, what, how would you describe some of the differences just between learning a bass part for a symphony versus playing in a jazz band? Well, um, learning the bass part for a symphony, again, that goes back to make sure you have a recording. (laughs) Right. Um, you want to take your part with the recording and, and, you know, look through it. And then, you know, principal basses, put bowings in which direction you're going with the bow Mm -hmm. and you want to make sure you have these bowings um and you know find a different fingerings particularly if it's a piece you don't know very well right so you know you definitely want to practice through that yeah well plus i'm Uh, also thinking some of you know uh, you've mentioned recording um which probably works 90 eight 99 percent of the time but i know like some of the orchestras you played for have done world premieres and so uh right. so I, that, that probably adds a little bit more of a challenge as far as just just reading it right well i like i say if you're able to predict by looking ahead right rather than react to it then you should be fine right okay but i uh but it sounds like to me um so in an orchestra you're relying a little bit more on what you see, and uh-huh. whereas uh, 
in other bands like blues and jazz, it's a little bit more in what you hear, but also kind of knowing how the music works off the page, you know? So Right, right. Well, it, I tell you, it's about um, knowing, you know, one, what key are you in either situation um, with, with upright, you use your ear in the sense of you're tuning to the rest of the section. Right. Whereas you're listening for chord changes in jazz. Right. So you want to be able to predict that with an approach note. You know, when the chord changes, I'll hit the root. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be stretched out for a couple bars. You know, I've tried to expand it in a way it will time out to properly, you know, approach the next chord change. Right. What is a bassist like yourself thinking of when you're playing a chart in jazz? I mean, obviously, like, if you see, like, a... Uh, I'll just do something simple, a two, five, one um, uh-huh. in, in C. So that'd be D, G, D minor, seven, G, seven, C, C six or C major seven. Uh, obviously, well, uh, I say obviously <laughs> to, to me, I'm thinking, well, I want to hit the D, the G and the C at some point in that measure. But sometimes I'll hear some basis that it's not really obviously ever do that. They kind of, they kind of wander around it, flirt with it, but they don't quite get there. So, like, uh, what are some things that you do as a jazz bassist? Just like, you know, because we have some listeners that probably don't do music at all, so or, or have done just a very little bit of music. So kind of dissect that. What are you thinking of when you're watching these chords? And you're like, what are some of the choices you could make as a bassist? Okay. Well, first off, um, how often do the chords change? Okay, let's just say uh, every four beats. <laughs> like, yeah, like a one, yeah. two, three, four. four beats. Well, you know the root, fifth, and octave of that chord. Right. You know? um, if you can find that, you can put in what we call, those become what we call target notes. Right. Okay, then I approach those target notes. Sometimes I do it with a half step. Sometimes I'll do it with a whole step. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll do it with a fifth. Right. You know, I just combine those different ways of approach to give your line more pull, give it that sense of direction. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I took a little bit of jazz arranging uh, in at School of the Arts. You, you may know the teacher, Ron Rudkin. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was actually, I mean, I've, I've told people before, it's like School of the Arts for me was when I'm thinking about what was the value that's still of value, uh, you know, networking is probably a big portion of it, but as far as like education that I did, that I haven't gotten elsewhere, it's, uh, was studying with Ron Rudkin and just learning a little bit about jazz. And, you know, so we had to occasionally like, we had to write out things cause we had to record it. And, and, and I remember just kind of having fun with the possibilities of the bass. It's like, you can, um, well, you can outline the chord if you so choose, like you can do the, like an arpeggio if you, if you uh, want to. Um, or you can do, like you said, you can approach it from above or below with some steps. Um, but yeah, I've, I've heard some basis of, over the years. It's like, um, like in a, in a two, five, one, it's like, I, I'm, I might be clear when they get to one, but, but I almost wonder if that's just a case of maybe they're playing with a, guitarist or pianist that's hitting the chord a little bit more strongly and so they're 
compensating by being a little bit more adventurous, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Or it could be that, you know, it's easy to have all these notes in mind, yet you're um, not counting on that adding up in time for the chord change. Right. Maybe they're in a little bit soon. Maybe they're changing, chord, don't realize to hit the root until the next beat or so. You right. Know? Yeah. Um, you can tell the basis it really uh, planned out. Uh, I was listening to uh, a song, uh, a slow song by Yes. And it was, I guess, Chris Squire plays bass. And uh, gosh, I forgot the got the name of the song but I, I think it's from like the tormato album it's kind of a little later yeah. in there uh but there's a place where it's coming to the cadence and chris squire does a like a two and a half three octave descending scale and it lands right on time and i'm thinking as an arranger he must have practiced it backwards to find a starting note <laughs> right yeah because right. it's because it like starts on yeah it's it ends up on a g and it starts on a B that's an octave, two octaves and a third above that. And <laughs> it's like, da 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 And it just goes, it just lands on time. And I figure, so that must be the types of things that, that you all are thinking, you know, when you're, especially if you're planning in advance, like, what would I do in this? And of course, you know, when we talk about jazz, you know, I was just thinking of the gig that we did. We did some straightforward swing and some ballads. And then I know one of the tunes I, I threw it, everybody all three gigs just to see how everyone would do is a dave grusin tune and you know that's kind of got a little bit of a funk to it so it's mm. so even in jazz you've got these different styles you have to learn and, and so forth so um but it's it's fun i think i think if you play if you learn jazz and you learn classical you're you're learning kind of all the major ways of approaching pieces of music you know which as I, I'm sure you'll agree, you need for the theater. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a few well, shows. Well. You, uh, you mentioned Bat Boy. You know, one one show that's come up a lot is uh, by the same composer is Legally Blonde. I don't know if you ever had a chance to play that one, but no, I haven't. I've heard it's it's a lot of fun, but I haven't played that one yet. Yeah. Uh, now, people who have played Bat Boy tell me that Legally Blonde isn't quite as difficult overall as Bat Boy, but um, having not played Bat Boy, it's like I I don't know if I want to see Bat Boy because Legally Blonde is quite difficult. Um, but uh, well, also Heather's too, right? Yeah, it, but it has so many varieties of styles just in in that one thing, you know. So and there's a few musicals like that. It just kind of, uh, you know. Now we're gonna have a a, a big band jazz sound. Now we're gonna be symphonic and. <laughs> And now here's a rock tune for the electric bass. And so, um, yeah, that's just something seems like bassist. Well, I mean, anybody who's playing the more experienced, the more well-rounded, the better. Um, so you know, we talked about blues bands, uh, that you play, you know, the ladies auxiliary, and we talked about playing in the symphony and, uh, and jazz. Um, are there, are there any other types of gigs that we miss that you that you sometimes play? Well, I mean, I play with several other bands. Let's see, I play with uh, Low Key, even though we really haven't had a gig this season. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to start shows with them before too long. Um, 
like I say, this band that grew out of the praise and worship band at West Market Church. We also do secular music. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, late summer, early fall was a big experiment in socially distanced gigs. So, right. Um, I I haven't lost absolutely everything. In fact, you know, we're building other things. So great. Um, well, I always like to ask people uh, these next two questions uh, about shows. What uh, what's a horror story you might have from playing in the pit? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Um, about three years ago, three summers ago. Um, it was the Repertory Theater Company in Burlington mm-hmm. was putting on the musical Heathers. Mm. And the whole thing was run by high school kids. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I tell you, that was a, a really difficult production for them to get together. In fact, the executive director, several occasions suggested that they cancel, mm. but they would you know, so... Um, anyway, they called me like less than a week to go before the thing went into production. And, um, I would get like three rehearsals, um, and they had trouble hiring an orchestra. I mean, for one thing, I had to tell them, look, if you don't come up on pay a little bit, I can't drive from Greensboro to Burlington every night that week, you know. So they did. I mean, it wasn't a whole lot, but they did. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I I came and did the the first rehearsal I had to read off of a piano reduction score. So that was a nightmare (laughs) to begin with. Right. Uh, In fact, I didn't get the actual score until, like, the dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And I took that in a recording, and we were able to pull opening night off, you know, reasonably well. Right. Uh, I do like how a lot of the horror stories, you know, they they aren't they're not bad memories. They they're just they were stressful moments at the time. You know, uh, what's a what's one of the most fond memories that come to mind when you think of playing the pit? Well, just some of the shows I've played, some of the most memorable have been, um, we'll see, Bad Boy I did at UNCG, that was years ago, mm-hmm. um, Next to Normal at both Elon University and North Carolina School of the Arts, um, a few others that were just really, really good, um, American Idiot was a lot of fun to play at Elon, right. um, you know, shows like that. Yeah, and uh, especially, you know, agree with you next to normal. That's one of my fondest memories as a keyboardist. Got to do that at Theater Alliance. And, mm-hmm. um, okay, uh, well, we're just about done. I'm just going to just go ahead and ask for the recording. Uh, where can people follow you and what you're doing in music? Well, um, just um, I use my Facebook account primarily just for music. Right promoting whatever it is I've got going on. So if there's something coming up that I want you to know about, you know, I'll post it. Right. You can check the timeline. It'll be there. Right. Uh, do, uh, does like ladies auxiliary, does any of your bands have a page or any kind or is, uh, yeah, the ladies auxiliary has a Facebook page. Okay. 
Uh, and so does Eight City Divas. Okay. All right. I'll make sure that definitely post those in the in the show notes. All right. Well, thank you. And I'm glad that you're it maybe not as busy as as you would be. I don't think any musician is, but uh I'm glad that you're you have some things to do and that you know things are kind of looking up for some other gigs. So uh but thank you for taking time to interview with me today. Well, thank you for interviewing me. I appreciate it. And that wraps up episode number 25. Next week, I'm going to be talking to the current music director of a very large community theater show that would be in its 26th consecutive year, if not for the pandemic. They regularly have a cast of 100 plus and uh, a live pit orchestra in the upper teens. If you're curious as to how a medium-sized city in the South can do theater big and do it every year, be sure to check out this episode. That's next Friday, November the 13th. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter or Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thanks to Mark Parolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. All original music is composed and performed by David Lane. For the time being, you can find out more about this podcast or leave feedback through davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and share with your friends. Thank you for listening. 